All right, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. So we got a new clicker here, and I'm not sure. There we go. Oh, wow. It's a little bit delayed. Yeah, never mind. Anyway, today's kind of a weird day, isn't it? I mean, I don't know what the rest of you are going to be doing tonight, but this is what my night's going to look like. So tonight, I'm going to go put on my kippah. I'm going to light the candles on my Hanukkah. I'm going to say the Hanukkah blessings and give my family presents. And then I'm going to take my kippah off, put on a little Santa hat, uh, light, up, light up my Christmas tree, sing some carols, and then give my family some more presents. So everyone's making out like a bandit today. So isn't this a perfect picture of what being a Messianic Jew is like? You know, much like December 25th, 2016, Messianic Jews exist in this strange state of almost being two things at once. On one hand, we are very much Jews, and we live Jewish lives. We circumcise on bar mitzvah our children. We keep kosher. We observe the Sabbath. We fulfill our covenantal duties to the God of Israel. But at the same time, we're believers in Messiah. And we're part of a greater body of Messiah that includes so many non-Jewish people. And sometimes it'd be hard to tell where one of our parts ends and the other one begins. Tonight, all over the world, there are going to be Jews celebrating Christmas and Gentiles celebrating Hanukkah and Canadians celebrating Boxing Day. And, you know, whatever Kwanzaa. So it can be confusing, especially on days like this, to understand what our identity is, who we truly are in God's eyes. And I think this struggle for identity is exemplified in the life of our patriarch Jacob. There we go. Okay, now it's working. So Jacob's been, been the focus of our last three-part show, Toldot, Vayetze, and Vayishlach. And now that the focus of the story has shifted to his son Joseph, I thought this would be a good opportunity to look back on Jacob's story, not as individual parshot, but as a whole, and see what we can learn about Jacob's struggle for identity and what it means for our own struggles. So what I want to do today is look at the story from, and specifically at three particular verses from these three parshot that really tie the story together in a neat way. So the three verses are from Genesis 27, 29, and 33. And we're going to go through them one at a time and see how each one leads to the next and how they tell the story of how Jacob, the trickster, becomes Israel, the father of the Jewish people. So let's dive in. So the first verse we're going to look at is from Parsha Toldot. It's Genesis 27, 38. Esau said to his father, Do you just have one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. I think this is a story that we're all familiar with. Our mother, Rebecca, conceives twin boys that she can feel at war within her womb. The Lord sends her a prophecy that two nations are within her and that the younger will be greater than the older. The twins are born with the younger son, Jacob, clutching at the heel of his elder brother, Esau. And this sets a tone for their relationship for the rest of their lives. We see when they're older that Jacob, desiring to have Esau's birthright, tricks his brother into trading it for a bowl of soup. And then later on in his mother's urging, Jacob puts on Esau's clothes and tricks his blind father into blessing him in his brother's place. So, you know, I read this story as a kid, and it made a lot of sense to me then. You know, Jacob is the good guy. Esau is the bad guy. Good guy wins the end. 
But now as an adult, when I read this, I feel kind of conflicted. You know, if you read the scriptures, Esau is clearly portrayed as the villain, not just in Genesis, but all over the Bible. The prophet Malachi rails against Esau and his descendants and denounces deserving judgment on them. The writer of Hebrews tells us that no one was more unholy than Esau. If Esau was willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup, could he really be entrusted with the covenant of Abraham? Isaac was not only physically blind, but also blind to his son's faults. Had Esau obtained his father's blessing, he would have become the father of the Jewish people, and we would have been doomed to immorality and evil from the beginning. Jacob and Rebekah had no choice but to act to safeguard the future of the Jewish people. And yet when I read this story, the one I empathize with is not Jacob and Rebekah, but Isaac and Esau. You know, this is a picture from the children's Bible that I read when I was a kid. And, you know, I think the artist was amazing in this book. Because this, this image of anguish that Isaac and Esau feel has stayed with me my entire life. The Torah is very sparing when it comes to describing emotion. You know, during the events of the binding of Isaac, we are not once told how Isaac was feeling during the whole harrowing episode. But when he realizes that Jacob deceived him, we're told that he trembled violently, and Esau burst out with a loud and bitter cry. Now, this isn't the language of villains being outwitted. It's a language of loss and betrayal and, yes, injustice. Jacob took something that didn't belong to him and deeply hurt two people that he loved in the process. So how are we supposed to feel about this story? Was Jacob right to steal that blessing? Did the ends justify the means? Well, many commenters say that they did, and I think that if we do what I just talked about, look at the story as a whole, we'll see that Jacob was actually in the wrong, that he stole his father's blessing, and that his actions led to unnecessary suffering for everyone involved. So let's just take a look at what it was that Jacob stole from Esau. So this is the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob when he is disguised as Esau. May God give you from the dew of the sky and from the fatness of the land and an abundance of grain and new wine. So we got grain, wine, abundance of land. Isaac is blessing Esau with wealth. And then he goes on, May peoples serve you and may nations bow down to you. Be master over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down before you. Servants, people bowing down, mastery. Isaac is now blessing Esau with power, wealth, and power. These are nice things to have, right? But these are not the blessings of the covenant. The promises that God makes to Abraham and to Isaac have nothing to do with wealth and power. God never promises that the Jews will be rich and powerful. God tells Abraham that he'll bless him with many children, that he will give his descendants a land to call their own. God promises Isaac some of the same thing, children and land. This is Isaac's true legacy, not wealth and power. And Isaac understands this. Isaac isn't as blind as some might think. Isaac loved Esau, but he understood who Esau was. He saw himself as birthright for a bowl of soup. Isaac knew that as much as he loved Esau, he wasn't the one to carry on the covenant, and that meant, that meant everything to his family. So when the time came for him to bless Esau, he gave him gifts that he knew that his son would appreciate, wealth 
and power. He gave those, he gave those to Esau because he had a separate blessing laid aside for Jacob. In the next chapter, as Jacob was preparing to leave his home to seek out a wife for himself, Isaac calls Jacob to him. Now, you think, you'd, you think Isaac would never want to speak to his son again, but what he did instead was Isaac gave Jacob another blessing. Oh, my gosh. There we go. May El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you will become an assembly of people. And may he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your seed that you may take possession of the land of your sojourn, which God gave to Abraham. Children and land. These are the blessings of the covenant. These are the blessings that Isaac always intended to give to Jacob. Jacob never needed to disguise himself. He never needed to trick his father and his brother. If Jacob had trusted in the Lord just a little bit more, if he had the patience to wait, God would have fulfilled his plan for Jacob's life in his own time. But this is Jacob's character arc. This is part one of his story. Jacob is born clutching at Esau's heel. He buys Esau's birthright. He steals Esau's blessing. He even dresses up in Esau's clothing and tells his father, I'm your son, Esau. Jacob even wanted to be Esau. He wanted what Esau had because he wanted to be Esau. He wanted to be the eldest, to be strong and powerful, to be his father's favorite. Jacob's major flaw in part one of his story is that he's so busy trying to be Esau that he never realizes who he is. He never realizes that he is the chosen of God, that he is the one who's going to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham. And so Jacob makes a terrible mistake. Rather than trusting God's plan, Jacob tries to take his destiny into his own hands, and the result is devastating. The bond of trust between father and son is broken. The bond of love between brothers is shattered, and Jacob is forced to flee his home from the wrath of Esau. Jacob will never see his beloved mother again. Jacob's actions in part one ended in Esau's tears. In part two, Jacob will face the consequences of his actions and shed tears of his own. So, in the aftermath of Jacob's deception, Esau vows that he's going to kill his brother the first chance he gets. Rebecca gets wind of this and tells Jacob that he needs to leave home for a few days until Esau has calmed down. She tells him to go and hide out with her brother Laban until the heat dies down. What Rebecca doesn't know is that the few days will turn into 20 bitter years for Jacob before he can ever return home. So the second verse I wanted to look at is Genesis 29.11. Jacob goes to a well and asks some local shepherds if they know his kinsman Laban. While they're conversing, Laban's daughter Rachel arrives to water her flock. So it's pretty standard so far, but what happens next is a mystery. Upon seeing Rachel, we're told that Jacob lifts up his voice and weeps. Now, first reading, you might think, okay, well, Jacob was so happy to see her. You know, or maybe it was love at first sight, and Jacob was overcome with emotion. But both of those explanations require the tears that Jacob sheds over Rachel to be tears of joy. And that's not what the text says. The Hebrew text says, He lifts up his voice and weeps. Now, does that expression sound familiar to you? 
It should, because it's not used very often in the Bible. And every time it's used, it's to express a deep sense of loss and mourning. And we see these words when Hagar believes her son is going to die, when Naomi parts from her daughters forever, when Israel believes that they're not strong enough to enter the land. This is the weeping of David over his kidnapped wives, the weeping of a nation that has been declared unworthy. This is never an expression of joy. It's always one of regret and of seeing the things that you love slipping through your fingers. And its expression sounds familiar. It's because it's used one more time in Torah. When Esau realizes that Jacob has taken his blessing. The text is almost intentionally drawing attention to the similarities between these two verses. It's almost as if it's saying that because Jacob caused Esau to weep, now it's Jacob's turn to experience loss. But why would Jacob weep in sadness when he saw Rachel? Well, Rashi has two explanations. Rashi says that when he saw Rachel, God sent Jacob a prophetic vision. He saw that as much as he might love her, Rachel would not be buried with him. Jacob saw a vision of Rachel dying young while he was still a wanderer and saw himself being forced to bury her far from home, forever separated from her in death. And Rashi's second explanation is that Jacob wept because he was coming to his bride empty-handed. He said to himself, My grandfather's servant Eleazar came to Laban with 12 camels packed with gold, but I have nothing but my own hands with which to purchase my wife. But that just raises more questions. Isaac and Rebekah should know better than anyone how Laban works and what it would take for Jacob to come home with a bride. Why would they send him to Laban empty-handed? So Rashi has an answer for everything, of course. You know. He quotes that from a midrash that says, While Jacob was traveling to Bethel, Esau sent his son Eliphaz to follow Jacob and kill him on the way. So what happens next is like right out of, the, out of Snow White. Eliphaz catches up to Jacob, but he just doesn't have the heart to kill his uncle. But he can't just return home either. So Jacob tells Eliphaz, Take my money instead and bring it to Esau as proof that you've killed me. To be a beggar is as good as dead anyways. So Jacob, who left home a wealthy man, arrives at Laban's house a beggar. When he sees Rachel, he instantly falls in love with her and knows he has to be with her at any cost, but he also knows Rachel will not be his without years and years of hardship. And in the end, after working so hard to get her, he will lose her in death. And so Jacob lifts up his voice and weeps for the losses he knows he will bear, and because it all could have been avoided if he had just been patient and waited for God to bless him in his own time. <clears throat> if Jacob had not stolen Esau's blessing, he would have been able to pay Rachel's bride price right up front, returned home after a few days. Instead, Jacob must reap the harvest of his deception under the whip of his uncle, Laban. Now, Laban, is, he's like an interesting figure in, you know, in Torah. He's, he's almost too bad to be true. He's, he's like the villain of like a kid's cartoon show where he just has just there to teach the kids what not to do. And, and it's, it's kind of funny because Rashi hates Laban. I was actually laughing while I was reading his commentary because he has just nothing nice to say about Laban at all. It's... So, for example, when Laban makes his entrance in the story, he greets Jacob and hugs him and kisses him. He's like, oh, what a nice guy. But Rashi's like, oh, when Laban heard that Jacob was coming, 
he ran as fast as he could. He thought Jacob must, you know, must have lots of gold with him because, you know, his father's servant came with ten camels laden with gifts. But when he arrived, he didn't see any camels. So he thought, oh, well, maybe he's got cash on him. So he goes and he starts hugging him, like feeling up in his vest to see if he's got any money. And, but when he couldn't find any money there, he kissed him. He's like, oh, maybe he's got pearls in his mouth. So he kisses him and he tries to like root around in his teeth to see if he's got anything. <laughs> so so you, you get the picture. Laban is presented as this embodiment of avarice. Every interaction he has in the Bible is about business, and he's trying to get over on someone else. So it's, it's not a person. It's a plot device. And that's how I see Laban. He, he wasn't a villain. He was someone that God put into Jacob's life so his story could progress to the next chapter. For Jacob to grow as a person, he had to learn his lesson. Jacob had already begun to suffer the consequences of his actions, but he still had to learn why what he did was so wrong. In this incredibly karmic story, Laban, of all people, is the one who teaches Jacob the error of his ways. So let's take a look at what happens. So here's another familiar story. Jacob agrees to work for Laban for seven years in return for Rachel's hand in marriage. But on the wedding night, what should have been the happiest day of Jacob's life, history repeats itself. So first Laban prepares a great feast to distract Jacob. And then, under the cover of darkness, when Jacob is blind, Laban disguises Leah in Rachel's wedding clothes and brings her to Jacob. And then, in the morning... After the sun rises, after he's already consummated the marriage, he realizes he's been tricked. So then he rushes to confront Laban and asks him, Why have you deceived me? And Laban just gives him this sick burn in response. He tells Jacob, It's not the practice in our place to marry the younger before the elder. I don't know how you do things where you come from, Jacob, but around here, the younger doesn't take what belongs to the elder. And Jacob has no response to this. He could have argued that the marriage wasn't made in good faith. He could have demanded an annulment, or he could have just taken Rachel and made a run for it. Instead, he remains silent and accepts Laban's terms. Jacob finally knows how it feels to be the victim of deceit, how much it hurts, and how damaging it is to the relationship. So in a way, Jacob finally gets what he's always wanted. Now he knows what it feels like to be Esau. And in part three, Jacob can finally start to be himself. So at the beginning of Parsha Vayetze, Jacob came to Laban's house with nothing more than his walking staff. After 20 years and more drama than we have time to cover today, God finally appears to Jacob again and tells him it's time to go home. So Jacob leaves Laban's house with two wives, two maids, 11 children, and more wealth than he knows what to do with. But there's one thing standing between Jacob and home. It's more dramatic if the thing actually works. I got it. Esau. It was Esau. It was always going to be Esau. There he goes. Isn't he? That's a scary picture. In order to return home, Jacob must travel through the territory of Edom and confront the brother that he deceived all those years ago. Even worse, Jacob receives word that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. Jacob can only expect that his brother has assembled this force to kill him and everyone he loves. I mean, why else would you bring that many dudes? It's, and yet, Jacob cannot ignore the command of God. He has to go home. 
So Jacob and his part party must cross the Jordan River to enter back into the promised land. And Jacob sends all his possessions and his family on ahead of him until he is the only one left on the far side of the river. And then once he's all alone, one of the most mysterious episodes in the Bible occurs. The Torah is very sparing on details, so I'm going to engage in a little storytelling of how I imagine the encounter went. Jacob stands on the banks of the river. Here's, here we go. What's that? So I'm going to do a little storytelling here, so I'm going to go into narrative thing. So Jacob stands on the banks of the river, unable to force himself to cross over. To cross the river would mean that he's truly going back home. It means he's going to have to face his father, his brother, his past. As he stands, unable to move, he, he hears footsteps approaching in the gloom and sees a man walking towards him. Jacob calls out for the stranger to identify himself, but the man doesn't respond. Instead, he just rushes at Jacob and throws him to the ground. Jacob leaps to his feet and grabs the man before he can attack him again. What do you want? Jacob cries out. But the man is silent. The two men grapple throughout the long night. Over and over again, Jacob asks the man what he wants, but he never gets an answer. Jacob cannot see the face of his opponent in the dark. He can only catch glimpses. At times, the man looks like Laban, who deceived him and treated him like a slave. But then his face would change to that of his father Isaac, who always favored his elder brother over him. The man's face would change again, and it would look at times like Rachel and other times like Leah, his two wives who competed so bitterly for his affections and whom he struggled to keep the peace between. But then the man's face changed one more time, and now Jacob was struggling with Esau, With renewed strength, Jacob threw his brother to the ground and climbed on top of him, ready to throttle the life out of the man who he loved and feared and looked up to and envied. But just then the sun crests over the horizon, and Jacob saw the face of the man clearly for the first time. The man bore Jacob's own features. Jacob had been wrestling with himself all night. Who are you? Jacob asks. And finally the man answers him. Why do you ask my name? The real question is, who are you? And Jacob, completely exhausted, can only answer, I don't know. But then God said, I know who you are. You are Israel, my beloved. You will always strive against God and against men, but you will prevail because I am always with you. Now go home. And Jacob crosses the river, a different man than he was the night before. With renewed resolve, Jacob separates hundreds of his sheep and goats and cattle and donkeys from his herd, and he drives them ahead of him with a message that they are a gift for Esau. As Jacob and Esau's forces approach each other, Jacob, who has been last across over the river, walks to the front of his party and puts himself between his family and Esau. When the two men meet before any words are said, Jacob walks out and bows down before Esau. Jacob is doing more than just trying to appease his brother. He is returning Esau's stolen blessing back to him. Jacob gives him a gift of wealth in the animals and power in bowing before him. And when Jacob goes before Esau, he says, Please take back my blessing because God has given me enough. Everything that Isaac had promised to Esau, Jacob gives back. 
When Jacob rises, the two men run to each other, embrace, and weep. But this time, rather than tears of sorrow and loss, they cry tears of joy. God has healed their hurts and restored their relationship. Esau has regained his blessing, and Jacob has regained his brother and his identity. And he can finally come home. So when I read the story of Jacob, I see in his struggles so many of my own as a Messianic Jew. I identify with his struggle for identity, his struggle to find a place in the world, his struggle to be a blessing. But when I call out to the Lord and I ask him, who am I? God gives me the same answer that he gave Jacob. He tells me, I know who you are. You are my beloved child. And you will struggle, but you will overcome because I am always with you. Shabbat shalom.